Have you ever wanted to discover what's missing in your life? Metaphysics is available to all and is part of your life even if you don't know it. Welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil with Barb Crowley. Together we'll explore the mysteries behind metaphysics and how to use it to have a deeper understanding and advantage in life. And now here's your host, Barb Crowley. Hi, this is Barb Crowley and welcome to Metaphysics, a view through the veil. Today we're talking to Richard Kratz. And he, Richard started off working in telecommunications and IT industries in the 70s when he picked up and started to study Transcendental Meditation, TM for anybody who remembers, under Maharishi Mahesh Yogi. I got it. <laughs> um, and he later spent three years with Native American shamanism, a shaman. He was raised to the degree of Master Mason and has served as master of a lodge, as well as holding many leadership roles within the Knights Templar. I have to say that often we'll talk about masonry, but it's rare that we talk about masonry with somebody who is a mason. Usually it's people who have researched it. So I'm so glad to have you here with us. Welcome to the show, Richard. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Now, Richard has written a book, and actually, I'm going to give it to you. But why did? what is the inspiration for your book? You were telling me off camera, and it was so well said that I stopped you and said, no, tell me on camera. <laughs> but okay. tell me about your well, book and the inspiration for your book. Well, you know, I could provide a stock answer to the effect that I was inspired by Dan Brown and his character, Robert Langning, the uh, symbologist, or Carlos Castaneda, or yeah, Carlos Castaneda and his character Don Juan, who was a, a Native American sorcerer. Uh, it's a good characterization, but it's not really true. Uh, the real impetus was Freemasonry. Um, when I was initiated, passed, and raised as Master Mason, I thought I'd be privy to and, and learn all these ancient secrets. I had a gazillion questions that my brothers couldn't answer. It turns out the secrets that I was looking for were lost. Uh, my brothers didn't know them and could only offer moral, biblical, or existential philosophical interpretations. Uh, so I embarked on a quest to find these lost secrets and recover them. Um, however, my true inspiration was, you know, my brother Mason's, uh, my audience, you, because if I had unanswered questions that I didn't have answers for, uh, you must have them too. So, you know, it was my curiosity and your curiosity and desire for answers is what truly inspired me. And, and I always wanted to get into the inside of Freemasonry because I thought they had all the answers, you know, all the hidden answers, the secrets. <laughs> oh, they're well. They 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 like to try and play a game where you know we're not a secret society. We're a society of secrets, but nobody knows the secrets. You know, it's all <laughs> they are very it's secret. Caught up in the ritual and the lecture, and uh, sadly, the you know times have changed. You know, the, our our way of thinking, the knowledge of symbols and allegory and those things. Mm -hmm you know, have gone by the wayside. Uh, it's just one of those things that happens with progress. Although I have to say that in your book, you have all a page of all the symbols and what they mean. And I thought I might have to take a picture and make a poster of this. <laughs> because, you know, I see these symbols and I don't really know what they mean. And you have put it out exactly what these symbols mean, which is great, which is great. But oh, you know what? You. We never mentioned the name of your book. So give me the name and then uh, let's talk about how you broke it down into three sections like that. All right. Uh, the title of the book is The Alchemical Search for the Unified Field. Um, it's I have it broken out into to three sections. Uh, and the sections are Bell, Book, and Candle. And it doesn't really refer to that fantasy romantic comedy uh, movie with Jack Lemmon. And I think it was Kim Novak that came out in the late fifties, early sixties at all. Um, it has to do 
if you're familiar with it, um, a medieval rite of the Catholic Church where that was used to excommunicate heretics, you know, people that were thinking for themselves uh, and not just sticking uh, to whatever the church uh doctrine yeah (laughs) told them you know they and they began questioning and as soon as you ask questions about things uh that makes them very uncomfortable so they would say oh you're you accuse you of heresy which is what happened to the templars uh and excommunicate you because you're not allowed to ask questions Mm -hmm. Uh, but really the thing is, is they didn't know the answers either I think that was a lot of the problem. That's exactly right. Uh, But what Bell, Book, and Candle refers to in this instance, well, before I actually get into that, you also find that in occult ceremonies that that phrase is used as well. For example, if they're going to open a, a ritual, they'll say, okay, we're going to ring the bell open the book, and light the candle. And when they finish it, which is where the church's excommunication came in, it's they're going to ring the bell, which is calling attention, and they're going to close the book and extinguish the candle. In other words, the light is going out. Okay. Mm -hmm. In this sense, what we're looking at in uh, the alchemical search for the unified field is when we ring the bell, it's a calling. We're being called to something. And when we answer that call, we're initiated. We can become uh, an entered apprentice, for example, in uh, the Masonic fraternity. Uh, We're initiated in. Uh, And then if we advance to the degree of a fellow craft, we're on a quest for knowledge and learning. We open not just one book, but many books, because we're trying to learn as much as we possibly can. The candle, a candle provides illumination. And as master masons, that's what we seek. We seek illumination, a way of taking the knowledge that we have acquired and applying it to everyday life to gain experience and when we gain experience through the application of our knowledge we be, we gain wisdom and wisdom is illumination so that's really what it comes down to uh answering the call acquiring knowledge and gaining illumination or enlightenment And that's what I'm really discussing throughout the books. Uh, Um, And I take a very different approach to uh, what most folks would expect in that, again, it parallels the degrees of masonry. Uh, In the first portion of the book, uh, under the bell where we're answering the call, we're, we're obtaining a very brief historical overview of not just masonry, but of mythology and an introduction were being initiated into what the Philosopher's Stone might be about. As we progress to the second section as a fellow craft, where we're laboring in the quarry of knowledge, uh, we learn the operative mechanics of the stone. Uh, what is it? You know, try to describe it. And how is it used? What makes it work? And these are. And before we go on, before we go on, I've got to ask you to explain the Philosopher's Stone, because a lot of us out here may not know what that is. So, you know, (laughs) keep in mind that my level. (laughs) Okay. Uh, The Philosopher's Stone is something that most folks are familiar with from the perspective of changing lead into gold. That's how I know it, but in the way you were talking about it. That's the general perception of it. 
I mean, I can mm-hmm. go really deep down that rabbit hole, but you don't want me to uh, because it involves quantum physics and all kinds of other things. Oh, yeah. But, you can't go there. <laughs> you know, you don't want to go there. But in my investigation, and I've, I've been investigating the Philosopher's Stone for the better part of my life, especially during the course of the past 20 years, what I've discovered is there's actually four aspects of it. The first is that it can be a vehicle for a higher consciousness through meditation. Okay, so that's what we're going to talk about in this book. Uh, But beyond that, you can say, okay, yeah, it, it the transmutation or the changing of lead into gold. From a pragmatic perspective. That really doesn't happen. Because mm-hmm. lead is an element, okay, and as an element, it's pure. There are no impurities in in lead as an element, and so that would require changing the molecular structure uh, of one element to become another. Even though they're very close uh, in atomic number, uh, gold is is different. It has different properties. So you would have to change the molecular structure using a nuclear reactor in order for that mm-hmm. to happen. But realistically, from an alchemical perspective, what the ancients were doing was they were taking galena, which is a raw lead ore, and they would, through a process, burn it down and you know get rid of all of the impurities that are in it. You know, the, you know, there would be some noxious fumes and that sort of thing. And the result would be that you would have pure lead and it would have a bullion in this white powder. It looks like oxidation on it that contains silver and trace amounts of gold. And they would be able to distill that further and extract, you know, minute amounts of gold in that regard. So literally you you really can't change lead into gold the mm-hmm. third aspect of the philosopher's stone is that it it's possible that it could be a vehicle for travel in the space-time continuum um again that's getting pretty deep you know mm-hmm. um so i'm not going to go there and it's also known as an elixir of life. So those are the four aspects of the Philosopher's Stone. I'm only addressing the attainment of, you know, a higher state of consciousness through meditation in the alchemical search for the unified field, because that other material, it gets pretty deep and it it would fly over the head of most folks. Mm -hmm. So it did a little mine too. (laughs) Yeah. But that's good because I, you know, I'm thinking, well, this is what I know of it. So, yeah, good. Now you can go on. <laughs> okay. Now, where did I leave off at? Um, that's what I was thinking. Ooh. Because <laughs> um, I did kind of stop you in the middle. Yeah. So we answered the call. We're looking at an acquisition of knowledge in the second portion. Um, and that's, you know, as equivalent equates to climbing a mountain of knowledge uh, in an allegorical sense. Um, and these are, if you're familiar with the uh, seven universal principles or laws uh, as detailed in the Kabilian by the three initiates. I figure that I'm, I'm not knowledgeable of anything. I'm not familiar okay. with anything. <laughs> okay. So there's seven universal principles, and off the top of my head, I don't know if I can recall all of them. There mm-hmm. is mentalism, which is refers to the all. Uh, and some people say, okay, that's kind of like the God aspect of it, where the all is part of everything and everything is part of the all. Um, you're looking at, gender and that's got nothing to do with with sexuality it's just being mm-hmm. opposites uh certain properties uh, what else is there cause and effect oh my goodness 
I'm having a brain cramp on that one. But there there's seven of them that that come into play. And we discussed that a little bit. So these are all masculine aspects, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, in in the book section, uh we're looking at very detail oriented, which is a uh left brain function. So it's very masculine as far as its gender is concerned. And when we move transition to the third section of the book where we have candle, that is more feminine oriented. It's right brained. It's nature based. It's more of awareness. Uh, And the whole idea is to take both of these aspects of the left brain and the right brain and provide a union of opposites, bring them together. And that's what we can do using meditation. Um, And that's what provides this balance. So how does the philosopher's stone factor into this? Well, as we learn the operative mechanics of the stone, we begin to understand how all this works. And then we learn how how to actually do it. But to to obtain the benefits, we have to practice it. What we're doing is divesting ourselves of the superfluities of life, burning off our ego, just as though we had put a chunk of galena into, you know, an alchemical piece of equipment to burn off its impurities to mm-hmm. hopefully at some point get traces amounts of gold. That's what meditation helps us to do. In other words, to reduce our ego so that we're not just thinking about ourselves so much. We have learning to obtain a broader perspective of life. It's a more universal concept because life is not just about us. And that's where we start looking at the microcosm within the macrocosm. We, as as people, are a microcosm. The universe is the macrocosm. What we're trying to do is find our purpose and find our place within the universe. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, yeah. You know, I always, I reduce it down. I always say you're not a drop in the ocean, you're a drop and the ocean, (laughs) both, (laughs) both, Mm -hmm. because our minds have trouble taking in the concept because our minds are little. The other thing that burns off ego is hardship, you know, and that'll burn off ego pretty quick. And that's, that's one of the things that you can learn in masonry, um, that's taught in the third degree. You have a very rough road that you you must travel and you're blindfolded and you encounter three ruffians thus along and things happen, you know, incidents occur. And that's what, what that does is that says, yeah, we are not pure beings. We have to experience these hardships pain and suffering and only when we do that are we able to truly understand and Mm -hmm. that's how we become you know um, are able to advance to a higher level of consciousness and ultimately enlightenment enlightenment means that you know we have a greater understanding of not just ourselves but the world around us and, and um, a greater empathy because we've been there, because we've been beaten down. <laughs> exactly. We understand. Yeah, we understand. Can I ask the meditation you do? Do you do still do transcendental meditation? Do you still do TM as a technique or do you use something else well, as meditation? TM is one technique. And yes, I still practice it after I'll just say many years. years. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I'd say it held up pretty well. (laughs) Uh, Oh, thank you. And you you. still have your mantra and your word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, that was uh, 
to be to go through that was a very interesting experience. And of course, I've explored various forms of meditation and techniques since then. But there, there's a common core throughout all of it. And mm-hmm. one of the things that, if you'll allow me, uh, in the second yeah, part please. of the book, uh, we discover that the human body is actually an electrical system. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's so important that when we are meditating, that we're grounded. And it's something a lot of folks don't understand. Um, they equate oftentimes relaxation with meditation, and they're two totally different things. Um, to truly meditate, think in terms of uh, envisioning a Buddhist monk sitting cross-legged on the ground. They're always on the ground, you know, sitting down when they're meditating and they're chanting. And this is the same thing that we have to learn to do. And how does this correlate with an electrical system? Well, electrical systems have to be grounded as well. If they're not properly grounded, I mean, if you look in your house, you know, you've got this green wire, it's a neutral that goes directly to the ground, uh, you know, for your house or any other system. Um, you have to pull that, that power out and it provides the loop that you need, the continuity. And so when we're meditating, yes, we have to be grounded. And that means sit directly on the ground whenever possible, preferably outside on, on, on the dirt if you can or in the grass. Uh, if not, just sit on the floor of your house because the house is grounded itself. But try not to use uh, cushions or pillows, padding, even though that makes it much more comfortable uh, because right. that acts as an insulator. You know? And when you have an insulator, what that does is it prevents electrical current from getting through. So mm-hmm. the same thing would apply if you're sitting in a chair to meditate. Uh, make sure you take your shoes and socks off and that your bare feet are directly on the ground. Because if you're wearing shoes and socks, again, you're insulated and you're not benefiting from, you know, the connectivity with the ground. And how else is it electrical? Well, I like that that, idea. (laughs) Well, and if you think about it, you know, my I have a fairly extensive background in electronics. And when you look at a uh, diagram of the human central nervous system. You know, you see this in the form of a body and you see all this looks like wires going everywhere. And pretty much that's what the nerves are. They're just wires that go throughout the body and connecting different portions. But they begin up in our mind. Uh, our mind is kind of like a motherboard. And then within the mind, we have... Uh, three areas that folks refer to as the third eye. It's not just the pituitary gland. The pituitary gland is only a part of it. Uh, It also works with the thalamus and the uh, pineal gland. You have all three of them. It's a triad. Uh, And they control our thoughts, our emotions, and our decisions. They equate to a uh, harmonic generator. So what we want to do when we're meditating is try to create, to get those three areas of our mind in tune uh, so that we have harmony and unity. And then that filters down uh, through the nerves in our spinal cord. And we have male and female uh, nerve endings in there, parasympathetic and sympathetic nerves. And they cross over through uh, in our spine or the, the our spinal cord through the ganglia, there's that's where they're able to cross over and find neutrality because that goes all the way down to our coccyx. And when we're sitting on the ground, that's what's in contact with the ground is the base mm-hmm. of our spine. So again, the best way to visualize that is if you let's say you have a flashlight that has three D cell batteries in it. Okay. So you've got these three cell uh, D cell batteries inside the tube of a flashlight. 
and the base of the battery is negative, okay? And that provides your ground. That's where the little spring cap is at. Uh, and at the top, you have your lamp, this little tiny light bulb. And when you turn the switch on, if the whole the electrical circuit there is properly grounded, the lamp will come on. If it's not properly grounded, if there's a disconnect somewhere, let's say the filament in the lamp itself is broken, is burned out or whatever, mm -hmm. you're not going to receive any illumination. You won't be enlightened. Right. How's that right. for a description? That's pretty good. That's it, pretty good. So most of us probably have a broken circuit in there someplace, <laughs> I would think, because I don't see well, a whole lot of enlightened people walking around. <laughs> well, I don't know if, if they have broken circuits, but what understanding the operative mechanics of the stone uh, as applied to meditation helps us to do is to align our minds and our bodies so that we can have uh, unity and peace and harmony. We're become a harmonious unit. Uh, unit. And once we are able to, to achieve that, that's where all of a sudden it... Have you, are you familiar musically with, for example, four-part harmony? Have kind you heard of. that or... Or three I've heard harmony. of it. Yeah, yeah. So you have these these different sounds, and they begin to resonate. And when they attain a certain frequency, they harmonize. Okay, as one, and that's what we want to do with our body, mind, and spirit: is take all three of them because they're different, and have them vibrate and become just one unit and when that happens uh you will definitely know it because all of a sudden it's like wow you've achieved this higher state of consciousness you've become one with whatever is around you 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 have this greater sense of awareness it's more than just about yourself anymore it's about other people other things uh, situations, the universe in general, you know, you're thinking and actually seeing well beyond where you once were. So that's something that we're looking at here. It's a way that we can look at be, becoming, you know, experience all this pain and suffering, purging ourselves, divesting ourselves of the superfluities of life and our ego to become better than we once were. And another way of looking at that is to say, okay, well, meditation is actually a form of prayer. Prayer is predicated on meditation. A lot of folks aren't familiar with that, but that's basically they're, they're one and the same. So when mm -hmm. we're praying, we are in a, in a way, you know, as we're saying our prayers, that's kind of like a chant or a mantra. Um, we're helping to, you know, through this vocalization, this vibration, helping to align our mind, body, and spirit to become one with the universe. And prayer and meditation, they're the same thing. So mm -hmm. it's important to pray. It's important to meditate. Where does Kundalini come in this? Am I going sideways on that? I feel like that's mm -hmm. an electrical current that just kind of blows. Well, well, if you don't the watch out the, <laughs> the chakras, um, and, and that's an it's actually a very good and an interesting question. You know, it's like, uh, well, how were you able to determine that this was all an electrical system? Well, again, you know, if you look at the uh, model of the central nervous system in a body, uh, for someone with an electronic or electrical background, it becomes fairly obvious. But then when you're looking at the chakras, the kundalini, you'll see that they are centered on areas from, well, they call it the third eye, you know, and the cervical, thoracic, the lumbar, uh, coccyx, and, and sacral areas of our spine, those five areas. 
that those chakras or kundalini are are centered right on those areas and those are areas where nerve endings come out from our spine to different areas of our body and they control different organs uh and and functions and you know that caught my attention and then i was also looking at the caduceus uh the staff that hermes used and you find when you're looking at it, you see the snakes are intertwined on, on that mm-hmm. pole there. And lo and behold, if you take that caduceus, and I think I have a photo or an image of it in my book, and you overlay that on the chakras, you say you will see that where those snakes are intertwined and cross over, they intersect exactly where the chakras are located. And that the wings of the of the caduceus represent the two hemispheres of our mind and the little ball at the top of that staff would represent uh our third eye or that's where the thalamus pituitary gland and pineal glands are located up on you know in our our mind so you know i found that to be quite interesting Uh, Mm -hmm. and to advance that a little further i looked at it cabalistically and within if you're a student of the kabbalah most folks are familiar with like the uh, 10 serifa, you know, the, the 10 areas that in the tree of life. And there is what begins as a lightning flash that zigzags its way down through this tree of life from the head all the way down to uh, the ground uh, where it is actually grounded or earth. And it looks like a lightning flash. But when you overlay that on top of the chakras and the caduceus and the human body, you find that it's that lightning flash actually isn't a zigzag. It's representing the serpents that are intertwined on the caduceus. And again, it too is crossing over at the same chakra points. So you're able to say, okay, yeah, you can actually visually see it where this electronic or electrical circuit is going from our head all the way down our spine to the, to our ground, you know, at the base of it. So with that in mind, you know, it fits perfectly within meditation or within prayer that, yes, mm-hmm. we have to sit on the ground or sit somewhere where we are grounded. Uh, for us to be able to align ourselves uh, to become harm, you know, harmonize our mind, body, and spirit uh, to be able to attain in enlightenment or a higher level of consciousness. Is this also the vagus nerve in there? This is oh. going a little bit back to biology, really, where the vagus nerve is the longest nerve and. Pretty much goes from the top all the way to the bottom. Yeah, Am I wrong yeah. on that? And then no, branches I, I, out I, I, from there. Yeah, I think you're correct on that. Yeah, and it, it seems like, you know, when you're talking about these things, I'm thinking, and the vagus nerve is set up this way as well, it seems like. Yeah, yeah right. which is pretty amazing. Absolutely amazing. Mm-hmm. So it does interact right. with the biology as well as the electrical. Mm-hmm. And then we got the plumbing system in the body. <laughs> I always think of it that way too. Well, I don't We've think got we electrical go plumbing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what? I want to take a break right now and we'll be right back with Richard Kretz. Fascinating conversation. We kind of went a little bit away from your book, but I'm loving it. So we'll be right back. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. One thing's for certain. Life is uncertain. Do you navigate the unknowns? Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com to sign up for psychic readings and classes with Barb Crowley. You can schedule one-to-one sessions with Barb for personal and relationship counseling, pet communication, mediumship, career and business direction, or sign up for one of her classes. Everyone has answers through the metaphysical plane, but they need help to access them. 
Get the help you need today. Visit aviewthroughtheveil.com. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. You are listening to Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil with Barb Crowley. To reach the live show, please call into 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. You may also send an email to aviewthroughtheveil at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hi, we're back with Richard Kretz. And actually, during our break, we were talking about Freemasonry, and I want him to come back and talk about it, you know, where we can all hear it. Um, I've always been curious about what goes on in Freemasonry, where you alluded to the secrets that they don't have you know, earlier, um, but I still want to know what goes on. And you, you talked about the steps of initiation. So you want to share with us what goes on in there? <laughs> Let's open that door. <laughs> yes. Um, well, it's, you know, it's a fraternity. So technically speaking, regular Masons are all men, although there there is co-Masonry uh, that's not recognized by the regular Masons that includes women. Uh, personally, I think that's a good thing uh, because you, you have that balance of male and female thought. But besides that, uh, when there's a Masonic meeting, it's like any other organization. Primarily, it's a business meeting. Yes, they have rituals and they have lectures uh, or presentations and that sort of thing. But the... I think what folks are really interested in is the initiatory experience. Um, most folks, you know, if you go to ask uh, a brother about masonry, okay, uh, what they're going to tell you is that, well, we're not a secret society, but we're a society of secrets. And as mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, uh, most of them don't know the secrets any longer they've been <laughs> lost um and there there are reasons for that but i'm not going to delve into it uh and it has to do with the symbology and understanding the meaning of symbols which is a language unto itself and a single a symbol uh has multiple meanings it's just like many words uh words have multiple meanings Symbols are no different. They're just pictorial. Uh, Why is that symbol on the dollar bill? Which symbol is that? You know, it's a triangle with the eye, I think, in the middle. You know, a lot of people will say that's the uh, that's a Freemasonry. Am I getting that wrong? I could be, you know, because I've always heard it, but I never really understood it. Well, I don't know that having any true association with the Freemasons, it looks more like the Illuminati, if you ask me, but, yeah. you know, what do I know? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> but it but, is a uh, triangle with the eye in the middle. Yes, it's the all-seeing eye in there. And I think, you know, having the pyramid in the all-seeing eye uh, goes back to the, the culture of the Egyptian civilization, uh, where mm. a, a lot of these... Uh, Mystical orders seem to have a beginning or some connection. But with regard to the mason, masonry itself, uh, yeah, it's a, supposedly, you know, a society of secrets, not a secret society. And it, the, those secrets are contained within the symbols and the allegory or the metaphor and that uh, those meanings have are what have been lost. So if there's not an understanding of what the symbols mean or the phraseology within the allegory or the metaphor, uh, you know, what the connectivity is, uh, what's the message behind the message, uh, mm -hmm. then 
the understanding is lost. And that that's what has occurred, uh, especially probably over the last 100, 150 years. Uh, folks back in the mid-1800s were far more knowledgeable um, and in tune with these things than many folks are today, even though there is a resurgence. So, you know, what is it to be initiated? Well, it's like anything else, you know, if you're going into a fraternity in college, for example, you have an initiation. Uh, mm -hmm. There's initiations in many organizations, and it's an introduction. That's all it is. Right. Um, and, and in this instance, you know, yeah, you're being introduced to, you know, some of the symbols and things. And primarily it's on a moral uh, basis. It, it doesn't get into anything occultic or anything of that nature. Uh, it has to do, you know, they tend to be very morally focused, you know, biblically oriented. Um and so you're introduced to what the fraternity is, and there's uh, concepts and things that are very unfamiliar. Uh, for example, how you learn a catechism from mouth to ear. Uh, you know, it's rote repetition or, you know, uh, mm -hmm. memorization. And then you advance, and in the second degree, which they call fellow craft, uh, it's where you're learning the ropes. You're trying to acquire knowledge. And that's, again, that's pretty much what the lectures and the ritual are focusing on. It's done in such a way to say, yes, your acquisition of knowledge is important. And this is what you can expect along that path as you are trying to, to learn more. Um, when you get to uh, the point of being a master mason and you're considered to be raised, uh, that again, you know, it's a very moral, very biblical uh, background involving King Solomon. And for most folks that are familiar with masonry, a character known as Hiram Abiff. Um, and again, it's made very clear that, yeah, you're, going to be going down this very rough road and you're going to encounter difficult situations and people and incidents happen but you have to be able to move beyond that and at the very end of it what you learn is about resurrection you have to die before you can be reborn and this is a theme that's that's very common in many initiatic orders, um, and it and in very many much religions, in, yeah, and in many religions. And again, this is part of what we're talking about uh, with the philosopher's stone and meditation. We, in order to become better than we once were, we have to let go of those things that at one time were important to us. Um, we have to, to purge ourselves of the superfluities of life. We have to burn off our ego, you know, and become as pure as we can be. Um, and it's not an easy process. It's very painful. It's very difficult. Um, and that's what this allegory of traveling a rough road, encountering ruffians, and mm -hmm. incidents is all about it's saying yes this is the process you know if you want to become better than what, what you once were you have to learn to let go this is what's going to happen you know it's going to be painful you're going to suffer but here's the end result you know mm -hmm. if if you want to be better in the eyes of god and your fellow man this is what the requirements are. This is what you will experience. Does this that answer your you question? Talk, yeah. And you also talk about it in your in the part two. You've got your book in three parts. You also mm -hmm. talk about it there. 
But in part three, so you didn't get all the answers in masonry, and you went on to become a shaman, to study with Native American shamanism, or shamans. Yeah. You want to tell us about that? Yes. As I said early on, the operative mechanics is a very uh, detail-oriented, masculine uh, approach to the esoteric, uh, to masonry. And in my own experience, you know, you know, that's how I tend tended to look at things. And many people do. It's from this masculine, detail oriented perspective. And we can advance so far with that. But then we get to a plateau. And it seems like regardless of what we do, we can't quite get beyond that ceiling, beyond that wall, you know, to to do better to to advance glass ceiling (laughs) glass ceiling yes yeah and i found that in my experience with charles um as a shaman now explain who charles is because i haven't read your book yet (laughs) okay well charles is a very interesting person um i was very blessed to have him uh, become part of my life and he was probably he was a very very humble very simple man um you know unremarkable really you know you wouldn't generally pay much attention to him but very very wise you know mm-hmm. and he taught me through uh various experiences that i detailed uh in my book uh you know how it, he changed my perspective. Uh, perspective, excuse me, perspective of life. My perception uh, of how to look at things, and he taught me to be able to look beyond myself, to look beyond, you know, the veils, mm-hmm. so to speak, uh, into the distance. You know because. Ultimately, what I learned from him, life isn't about me or anyone else. Life is just part of a cycle. And through Charles, I mean, I had encounters with, uh, well, for those that haven't read the book yet, uh, we were up on a mountain, and I spent three years with him. And I had several different vision quests and things that I had to learn Um Towards the end of our relationship before he passed away, uh, I think it was a summer solstice. I can't recall exactly. But we had gone up to this high elevation place where you can kind of see forever. And you see the backbone of this mountain going off in the distance. And we stayed up there, observed the, uh, the solstice. Excuse me, it was an equinox. We observed the equinox, and when it got dark, we had about a, a 12, 14-mile hike across the ridge of this mountain. And it's very, very dangerous. Uh, and one of the first things that we had to do is I had crossed over this area that had, it was very rocky. There was boulders in it. Uh, lots of openings, very treacherous footing. And you couldn't see. You had to use your mind's eye in order to navigate through it, which is kind of difficult to describe. And as we're going through it, we encountered some rattlesnakes. And that was a bit harrowing. Uh, because when you said about the boulders, I immediately went to snakes. (laughs) Yes. Um, because, you know, if we had made either one of us had made one wrong move or one wrong decision, uh, our lives could have been ended instantly, you know, tragically. Um, so this is quite extreme to, for knowledge to, you know, to put yourself in that situation. But uh, within Native American culture, you know, rattlesnakes are, are very important and I'll, I'll, get back to discussing that here in a moment. Uh, so we continued across. There was an encounter 
with the bear. And then there was uh, another pretty scary one with some coyotes. And I end up in an area that's referred to as the channels. And in the channels is where I had a spiritual death experience and rebirth uh, that was quite profound that, you know, words really aren't able to describe. So that, that was one aspect of it. Uh, later on, he sent me out on another vision quest and it was quite symbolic uh, because during all of this, uh, it's allegorical when you're looking at it in comparison to the operative mechanics of an alchemist in that you're climbing a mountain of knowledge. You're trying to acquire knowledge. So he sends me out to find a flower, a specific flower. And it was, that too was quite an adventure uh, Mm -hmm. to go out and actually found, but what the flower represented was, it was the flower of wisdom. Um, so, you know, with that, you know, I attained, you know, what he had wanted to teach me. Um, it was just, you know, very symbolic of that. Um, mm-hmm. And interesting, is, you know. Is that the Holy Grail? For me, Finding the Grail? Yeah, it symbolized finding the Grail. Find, mm-hmm. finding that flower of wisdom, you know, on the mountain of knowledge. Um, so, yeah, that, that meant a lot. But I think one of the more interesting aspects, and there were some out-of-body experiences that uh, we went through, you know, there was, you know, use of a psychotropic. Uh, and th- that, that was quite profound and interesting as well. Uh, if any of you out there have, have, uh, done that, then you'll have an idea what I'm talking about. But uh, when you're Which having those visions. Which one did you do? Which one did you do? Which uh, psychotropic? Uh, uh, um, well, I prefer not to say because it's something that's out there and available in the wild and people have gotten a hold of it and abused it. Some of them, some folks have gotten messed up pretty bad by it. Some have died. So I prefer not to even hmm. name it. Because I did the the, um, it wasn't the a mushroom, psilocybin the mushroom. Whole... Okay, no, it wasn't. Yeah. It wasn't. What isn't psilocybin? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, but yeah, that that vision was was quite profound. Uh, but I think one of the more fun aspects of it was early on. Um, you know, he taught me a lot, uh, and he would use. Life, le- I guess the better part, uh, the best way to answer it is like life lessons, you know, whether it would be about gardening, you know, and planting seeds and the kind of soil, uh, the amount of water and the sunshine, you know, some seeds will grow depending on the time of the year, some won't, and in some, even if they come up, you know, they may or may not bear fruit, and the fruit they bear may or may not be any good, it could be poisonous. Mm-hmm. So there, there were lessons along that line, but one of my favorite, my fondest memory of Charles is uh, early on. It was late spring, and here we are. We're we're walking on this mountain. Uh, we're very high up, and there's a lot of scrub brush. We never walked on any trails or anything. It was just two friends that were walking across this mountain, you know, having a discussion about nature because we both enjoyed it. And we're talking about plants and the birds and the mushrooms and the animals and everything that's around us. Uh, It's just kind of what we did. So there's all this scrub brush high up on the mountain, and there's rocks everywhere. I mean, (laughs) everywhere you look, there was big old rocks. Uh, It was just the nature of the Appalachians. Uh, (laughs) You have these rocks. And he takes his staff, and he points at this one rock. And he says, there's a snake under there. I want you to lift it up and uh, see if he's at home. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. (laughs) Here we are. 
in the middle of freaking nowhere, right? Rocks all around us. And he's telling me there's a snake under this one rock that he wants mm -hmm. to talk to. Okay. So <laughs> I did as he asked. And here's me. the other thing. Do you want to talk to him that close? <laughs> I, lift, I lift the rock up. And lo and behold, there's uh, this little timber rattler under there. Mm -hmm. And he reaches down like it's nothing. He picks it up and it wraps around his arm. And he sticks it in my face. Uh, and he says, is it a boy or a girl? Hell, I don't know. <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. how, how do you tell the gender of a snake, you know? Right. And he, he's looking at it. And then he, he, he notices that it's flicking its tongue in and out. And he says, look at that. He's got a forked tongue. He doesn't know if he's a boy or a girl. He doesn't know. He's got a forked tongue. He doesn't know right from wrong. The truth from a lie, you know, good from bad, you know, it's no wonder the snake has a bad attitude, you know? <laughs> and I said, right now he's, he's, he's okay, but you know, he may change his mind and get angry and try to bite me. So, you know, I, I think maybe we should, you know, just let him go on his way. But, you know, the snake, in spite of all of his, his faults, he is wise and he likes to hide. He likes to hide under rocks. He likes to hide in trees and in bushes and behind things. But he is wise. And we have to pay attention to him. And he, he's actually afraid of us. If we look at him directly, you know, he's not going to be himself. He's going to be afraid. And he, he's just going to go want to run and hide. But if I put him down and we don't pay him any attention, we just let him go he'll actually show us which path to take. So Charles said something to him that I didn't understand. He puts the snake down and the snake slithers off, you know, and we're just watching the snake out of the corner of our eye. And after a few minutes, you know, we talked for a little bit more and we just went off in the direction that the snake went. And later on that evening, um, when we got done with our hike, we went up and we're sitting around the fire. And after that, that's when Charles uh, actually gave me my name, you know, and he began calling me a little snake um, <laughs> because, you know, of the snake that we found. I don't know if that's what his intention was or not, mm -hmm. but, you know, it was just a very fond memory that, you know, I can picture very clearly, you know, what that experience yeah, was. Yeah. What a, What an impressive teaching. You know, it's like a snake oh, yeah. in your but face. When you think about it, you know, it sounds like a very simple lesson, but it it was a lesson in duality. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, the snake didn't know if he was a boy or a girl. He didn't know right from wrong, the truth from a lie. We're looking at opposites. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's the snake embodies duality. And that's why he was wise. He was a union of opposites. Mm -hmm. I hate to tell you this. We have come to the end of the show. And that's a great place to end with Little Snake. <laughs> um, but thanks so much for being on. I want you to tell everybody where they can get you and where they can find your book and what you have coming up. Oh, okay. Uh, that opens a pretty, pretty large door. Um, the book is going to be available on July 11th at, uh, 2023. Cause we might correct, be out there next some, year too. Yeah. Well, about three weeks from now, uh, mm -hmm. it's going to be available, uh, through my publisher, which is inner traditions of Simon and Schuster. Uh, you can also get it through Barnes and Nobles, books to me Amazon and bookshop.org. Mm-hmm. Um, so it'll be out there on July 11th. Okay, great. Thanks so much. And do you have a website or you know, uh, wanna... I don't have a website that's up yet. It's under okay. construction, like so many other things. I do yeah. have an author site on Facebook. Um, mm -hmm. just, uh, if you're on Facebook, you can, uh, look under R E Prats. 
and you should be able to find me. Okay, great. Thanks so much for being on. I think it's been a fascinating conversation. I still have a million more questions, but no more time. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us for Metaphysics, A View Through the Veil. Please tune in for another edition with your host, Barb Crowley, next Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time and 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Enjoy your upcoming weekend.